So here we are, into season one. Ugh, I can make it. I can make it. Fifteen more episodes. So, this is our very first Star Trek season one cliffhanger. It's never happened before. They actually had a debate whether they were going to do that at all with this one. They kind of wanted to, and they wanted to push the idea. I have to admit, I'm kind of down with it, especially since I do very much like the idea of the Temporal Cold War, if only the actual creators had any idea what they were doing with it. But I digress. They were also going to reveal Future Guy in this episode. You know, Archer. They never did, obviously. So we find out there's a matriarchal society. Yeah, that's all I got for behind the scenes. <laughs> they pushed a lot of the money out of the middle episode, specifically so they could save it for this one, which is pretty normal. But that's about all I got from a behind-the-scenes perspective. Matriarchal mining colony. Um, there's a little tidbit. We're making history with every light year. It's an important showcasing because it helps to emphasize the theme of this episode, which I'll be d discussing as we go through this. So, the atmospheric nights, and there is a significant amount of destruction. We're not sure how much destruction initially, as we'll find out later. It's not actually planetary, but what happens is they dispense this thing, this byproduct, uh, I don't remember what it's called, in, as a result of their mining process into the atmosphere, which is something that can be ignited by plasma. And since plasma is so common when it comes to ship engines, you see the problems. Hence, they have these big, extensive protocols. But, um, honestly, this was a powder keg. Now, that makes sense. It's just, I mean, real-life mining is pretty dangerous, too, but we usually don't take our kids and our schools and our museums down into the coal mines with us, you know? I'm not trying to dismiss the death of 3,600 people. I'm just saying uh, this is going to happen at some point or another. That's what I'm trying to say. They were sitting on a lit TNT stick straight out of Minecraft, and it was just a matter of time until it finally detonated. Now, quick thing, though. You'll notice Reed was being extra cautious. That's actually important. I want you to remember that. And they were discussing how to deal with it, and it was just a normal episode. And then the ignition goes off, and everyone's horrified, and it does a good show of showing the devastation. And then we cut to that damned theme song. I think this, more than anything, really highlights why I hate that frickin' intro song. This will probably be the last time I comment on it until we get to the point where I'm not listening to it anymore. Uh, which will be Season 2, Episode 15, will be the first time I will not be listening to that intro song. Because... It, it's just like, oh my god, they're all dead. You gotta have faith! Just incredible tonal whiplash. And that's true even if you're watching it back in the day. Never mind watching a Blu-ray like I am. But anywho. I closed both ducts, sir. He emphasizes that three times in the coming scene and twice in the future. He even mentions this thing, unless they somehow spontaneously popped a leak and then resealed themselves. I point that out because this episode is weirdly well-written. I think this was Braga in his element here, because he really threw himself into the craft of this episode from a script perspective, and it shows. There's a lot of actual intelligent exposition and intelligent logical consequence going on. There's this wonderful bit, as they're all talking around, and uh, Hoshi's saying it's all gone, and Archer's like, you know, have you tried scanning? Have you tried... To communicating. And Reed is still insisting, no, I did it. I closed those ports. And he just insists that over and over and over again. Because of course he does. 
Reed is probably even more personally and emotionally hurt by this than Archer is. Archer, on the other hand, is in complete denial, total disbelief, doesn't get it at all, doesn't even cross his mind that 3,600 people are... Remember that. It's obviously the major point, major point of the episode, but there's another layer to that I want to get to. Um, so he doesn't get it at all. He flips out. It is when he's talking with Forrest, as he's just new, that Forrest has to jump in and tell him, hey, we need you to be the captain. That's your job, to be the captain, quoting Cisco to Worf here. And you know what's funny? Archer doesn't do it. He doesn't be the captain. He lets himself fall into a degree of doldrums that are so severe they could be considered clinical depression. Now, obviously, the loss of 3,600 people is horrific. And I'm not trying to say he's just immediately get over that. Actually, quite the contrary. This is fully in character and good writing. This is exactly what should happen. Someone like Picard, who is a seasoned 30-year career officer, by the time TNG comes along, I forget the exact date. He was captain of the uh, Stargazer for a long time before he took the Enterprise. He's got that experience and that ability. I like to think of it as a sifter, okay? So you got this, this, here's your brain, here's you, your soul, your heart, whatever you want to call it. Here's the severe emotional trauma. And over years of experience, someone like Picard has built up this trough. That's really the wrong word. Uh, trench, um, aqueduct, I don't know what word to use here. And the, the, the severe emotional trauma filters through that to him. And he's got barriers upon barriers upon barriers there. Not to prevent it, because it will go through and he will be affected by it. But to sift it, to filter it, so he only gets a little bit of trauma at a time. At a pace he can deal with without going completely insane. That is experience right there. Now, I don't know anything about that personally. My emotional barriers are at 1 HP, because I've been through some horrific stuff, and I never really learned how to deal with that. But I do know what this concept is, because I've seen it in my own mother, plus several other people. It's a medical thing, too. Medical professionals tend to have the same kind of sifting system to filter it down so they don't actually get hit by things very quickly and efficiently. There's this wonderful, wonderful scene in Scrubs, which is a comedy show, but by God, they nailed being in a hospital very well many times. And there's this bit where he says, hey, you see that doctor? He's in there telling uh, the people that that guy's going to die. And that's the end of his life, and they're going to be emotionally devastated, and they may never recover from this. And you know what he's going to do? He's going to tell them that. He's going to say he's sorry. Then he's going to go to the next office and help the next patient in line. That is what Archer does not have. Why would he? Really, how do you train for that? How do you prep for that? There's ways you can do to be prepped for maybe like having one filter. Just the one. But he doesn't have that because that is born of experience. That's how you get something like that. That's why Picard has that. That's why Kirk gets that. Cisco takes him a while, but he gets there too. He kind of had an advantage over the fact that, well... He kind of got a lot of his trauma out early, and so he's been dealing with it for most of his life. He had to speak to more or less literally gods in order to try and get over some of his trauma. 
I don't know what to say about Janeway on this one, so let's just skip over that for the time being. I, I don't think the authors thought this through with Janeway. But they certainly thought it through with Archer. He is being gobsmacked by emotional trauma that he cannot deal with. So he locks himself out. By the way, can I just say, finally, I'm seeing some legitimately good acting from Scott Bakula. Finally. I mean, I, I know that sounds strange, like, oh, God, about time. But it's more like a relief. This whole time I've been like, I swear this man can act. I just haven't been seeing it. I've seen it twice. And now I've seen it a third time. So, DePaul talks to Flock. She's concerned, of course. And he says a line which is fantastic. Emotional despair uh, doesn't always line up with responsibility. And she's like, this is horrible and awful. And, of course, he mentions, well, I mean, if he wasn't this emotionally impacted by this, something would be wrong. And he's right. If the captain was just, oh, well, another day at the office... Uh, that might be grounds for actually removing him from command because something is severely wrong there. Either he is actually sociopathic, like actually, actually, or he is having a, a complete disassociative breakdown and needs to be taken to the hospital immediately. So, I mentioned Bakula's acting. Because, see, here's the thing. He's in over his head, sure. Uh, he doesn't know how to deal with this, Sure. But what really sets this apart from every other incident in the whole show is that this is things going wrong. Now, I can just hear you saying, Laura, things have been going wrong the whole show. No, they haven't. Every time things have started to go wrong, they've turned around. <sighs> Literally, in the case of Silent Enemy. They've always managed to make it work. They've always managed to save the day. They haven't lost a single crew member. And every time, they've at least managed to come out even. Every single time. I've talked before about the difference between bad and actually bad. This is the first time we say something actually bad happened to Archer. And that's why this is such an impact for him. That's why this is the kind of thing that, that kits him across the knees in such a severe and stark manner. We do see everyone else copes with it in their own way. Most people bury themselves in their work. To Paul, let me, let me come back to her. But Archer is completely destroyed by this. One of the things Star Trek likes to do... Well, one of the things Star Trek usually does well is it destroys its main characters. You know, sometimes it's just a side character like Nog, and sometimes it's a main character like Janeway, but it destroys them. And then it sees what happens and how they deal with that, how they come out of that. Usually it follows a similar pattern. They come out of it with the best of themselves. But not always. This is going to come up in the future, too. I know it is. Even though I, I, I was looking ahead at Season 2, just to kind of glance. Uh, I recognize Regeneration. Um, what else? Hang on, I'll pull up the list here really quick. I was just looking at this. There's Regeneration. Uh, First Flight, I remember that one. Judgment, because we're going to be talking about that. And Ceasefire, because we're going to be talking about that. And Night in Sick Bay. Ah, and Minefield and Dead Stop. That's it. Those are the only episodes I recognize at all. So season two is going to be pretty blind. But uh, I do know this is going to be coming up in the future regardless. Make of that what you will. There's this bit where uh, Hoshi and Travis are talking about the people back home. Rumors! Media. It's nice to see it's still a problem in the future. 
to Paul, I mentioned how she deals with this. To Paul deals with this by being the captain, by taking the hit and recoiling and rolling with the punch and figuring out her next counterattack, all metaphorical, of course, which is exactly the kind of thing a captain should do in this case, the exact kind of thing Archer is not doing. For the umpteenth time, I think she would make a better captain than he would. This would have been a great time to upset the status quo and shift those roles around, consequently. Either way, <clears throat> what ends up happening is she goes to him, and she talks to him. You have a responsibility to contest this, as I will contest this to my government. So must you to your government. That's your job. Now, he comments on this is the first time an archer, uh, an archer, a Vulcan is trying to uh, cheer up a human. But what I really took from that, and what really comes across in her performance, again, wonderful praise for Blaylock, is, I have not given up. Neither should you. And that's especially poignant after uh, Shadows Over Pajam, or Shadows of Pajam, whatever the name of that episode was. Don't you think? He didn't give up on her there either. Lied and cheated in order to make sure he didn't give up on her. They're not exactly Kirk and Spock, but you can see how that is a direct inspiration for what they're trying to go for with Archer and Paul. I think they will succeed a little bit differently in different ways when they stop trying to emulate Kirk and Spock and try to push them into their own unique thing. But for right now, they're going with the Kirk and Spock thing. I'll get to that more in a minute, too. Then Archer lays down, gets up, and he's in different clothes. Ha, <laughs> ha. Um, interesting. Notice they very quickly and efficiently exposit what's going on. The only thing that makes me kind of raise an eyebrow is that Daniels waits a very long time to speak up, when realistically he should have just jumped forward and been like, Hey, it's me! But they wanted to have their scene. They probably wanted to pad out the episode a bit, let's just be honest. But it is admittedly good exposition. First we see him interact with the Tucker of the past, and it's like, oh, okay, this is one day before the Broken Bow incident. One day prior to that. So this is right before the show started. Then, and this is actually a really interesting bit, Archer actually pulls out what I like to call a mathematical proof. Now, I'm probably misusing this terminology, but when I think of a mathematical proof, I think something that, with the information you have, can prove itself. Um... In other words, if it relies on guesses or whimsy or hypotheticals, it's not proven. Therefore, it's not a proof. But if you can prove it within itself, then you have a proof, right? In this case, what he does is he goes and he asks for Dr. Phlox. He is informed that Dr. Phlox is here, and he knows who Dr. Phlox is, even though he never encountered Phlox prior to the Broken Bow incident, which is in the future from this point. Ergo, the mere existence of that knowledge proves that this was not an extensive dream, that he was not hallucinating or whatever, that he actually is from the future. Then Daniels finally shows up. Now, I don't know why Daniels took a minute. I also kind of love the idea of, we need to talk, so I'm going to hide you in a sliver of time where people aren't going to think to, to, to detect us. And you, that gets across the idea of something I've thought about before when it comes to Enterprise and its approach to time travel. See, this is type 2 time travel, almost universally. 
type two, for those of you who don't remember or don't want to go to the website, lawrunner.com, go right now, go, go, is um, when there is one single timeline, but it is malleable. So all the events happen, but if you go back and change things, these events change. If you go back and change them again, these events change. Now, the rules of time travel are actually a tricky thing, and there's actually gradients, which I usually don't get to talk about on Star Trek, because it does... There's rules of the universe, and then there's rules of time travel, and those two don't necessarily coincide. Uh, in other words, if you design a setting where time travel cannot alter anything, then you have designed a setting in which type 1 time travel is the norm. So if anybody does time travel in your setting, they always did and they always will, because the setting does not allow for the possibility of alterable timeline or multiple timelines. Make sense? Star Trek doesn't have a setting rule. Star Trek tends to be more on, let's be honest, whatever the author feels like. But usually it lines up relative to the specific type of time travel being used. And this is where things get interesting. Type 1 time travel is one unaltered line. You cannot alter the past because you already did it. So any time travel that is done always was done and always will be done. Now, I prefer that type of time travel from a fictional perspective because it's the hardest to do and usually is the cleverest. You know, from a writing perspective, you basically have to map everything out from word go, which is, takes a lot of work, but it can show off, uh, I guess show off is the right word, but it can showcase your foreshadowing much better than anything else can because you know what will have happened. But the unique niggle here is type 2 can appear to be type 1. If I go back to yesterday, and let me use a real example. Uh, I've recently decided to quit my putting uh, milk in my smoothies because I think it's affecting my digestion, right? Well, if I warped back to yesterday and just said, hey, pass me, don't put milk in the thing, then I warped right back, all that would be changed was I would have slightly less indigestion, and also I have now discovered that I will eventually gain time travel. But that's it. So... If you look at that, it's entirely feasible that that could be perceived to be type 1 time travel, even if it is actually type 2. I have altered the timeline, but I've altered it in such a way that it doesn't really change anything in any substantial way, and in fact seems to complete the timeline. Uh, several of my commenters have brought up several issues of Star Trek, episodes of Star Trek, where some issues that look like type 1 travel could be type 2 emulating type 1 in this manner. Um, Another good example, let's say that, oh god, that's a historical event that I can talk about. Um, Battle of Thermopylae. Let's say you go back and someone has altered the Battle of Thermopylae so that the Spartans somehow absolutely crush the Persians, okay? So you go back, and what you do is you change things, so you defeat the guy who's doing that, and then you look at the situation and you shoot down all the Persians, so, or excuse me, all the Spartans, I know it's not just Spartans there, and I know we don't even know exactly what's going on. Let's, let's, get in, let's not get into historical accuracy, okay? Let's just, let's just use this example because it's the first one that came to mind. So you shoot down all of the Greeks who are there, and in so doing, you ensure that the Persians now see that the pass is open and they can move forward. Time moves forward as if nothing changed, and it seems to be type 1 time travel, but actually it's just a timeline that was altered twice, once to change it, wants to change it to be more like what it should be. Make sense? Now, all of this lines up with how Daniels tends to use time travel here. Because if you pull someone back 
into a tiny little sliver of time and then make sure that things don't really change, then what you have done is alter the timeline in ways that don't matter. And that's the key part. We can talk about butterfly effect and ripple effect all we want, but it is actually reasonable to assume that as long as you are very careful, very, very careful and well-informed about how you alter time, you could actually alter it in a way that is technically altering it, but functionally isn't, right? If you step on one bug over there on the road, that bug was never stepped on in the original timeline. But realistically speaking, it probably doesn't have any significant effect on the new timeline. Sense make? This is all something I feel worth discussing with regards to how Daniels operates, especially since this also explains why he might not have revealed himself at first. He wanted Archer to go have the same conversation with Tucker the same way he did, and then he goes and figures out about flocks, and it's like, okay, now that you've done these things, that should happen, now I can jump in and be like, hey, let's talk for a bit. Timeline is preserved, even though it's altered. The second thing I have to talk about here is that he then... He mentions how Archer has... Well, he doesn't use this terminology. I like to think of it as condensing. Now, we actually know from the future, from the Temporal Investigation... or uh, Temporal Integrity Commission, excuse me, that one of the things they can do is they, compre they can compress multiple versions of you across different times into one version of you. All the memories recondensing into an individual, right? They do this to Captain Braxton over on Voyager. Now... I mention this because that feels in many ways kind of like what Daniels does with Archer here. Now, this is going to get a little weird, so bear with me. Archer wakes up in, in bed. Now, we're assuming type 2 time travel, so he wakes up, gets the call from Trip, responds to it, goes back to bed. Broken bow incident happens, start, Chuck Enterprise happens, Daniels pulls him back and dumps him into himself. This is now effectively modern Archer, and yet at the same time, he is modern Archer dumped into previous Archer. I say condensed, but that's not quite accurate because this is a different form of condensing which sustains the original. The original Archer is still there because that's his original body, which he is then going to pull future Archer back out of and dump back into the present, relatively speaking. Thus, past Archer seems that nothing has changed. After all, the conversation happened while he was asleep. Another clever thing to maintain the timeline. So past Archer doesn't miss out anything, on anything. He might be a little bit tired the next day because his body was up, but he has no memories of that because it hasn't happened yet from his perspective. <laughs> it's actually quite clever. Credit to Braga on this one for actually coming up with this. Anywho, <clears throat> so... Having done this, this leads to what is effectively the action sequence. But before I get to that, up until now, the episode has asked a very interesting question. And the ways everyone's been dealing with it are great character stuff, because the question is, what do you do when you did nothing wrong? To quote Picard, it is possible to make no mistakes and still lose. And that is a very important and very harsh lesson that we all probably learn at some point in our lives. It's a really horrifying thing to think that you could do nothing wrong and your life could be completely destroyed. Right? I've experienced that. More than once. And I imagine some of you have too, and I'm sorry that you have. No one should go through that. But even if you haven't gone through actually bad, you've probably experienced things going bad when you did nothing wrong. 
And that's what we see for the first half, two-thirds of this episode. They made, they followed every protocol. They followed every precaution. They were overcautious. They were extensive in their movements and their operations, and they did everything right. This then leads to the revelation. It wasn't us, Trip. Tucker comes over and asks that. And tr credit to Trenier. There's this brief moment where he just goes, and there's just this quick exhale, and you see the relief. Because even though 3,600 people are now dead, they're not dead because we made a mistake. They're dead because someone murdered them. Now, that that is an extremely different dynamic there, and very much does change how people would feel about that. It is still a tragedy, but it's a tragedy perpetrated by your enemy, not you. And the kind of guilt that that would cause is now gone. And we see this in both Archer and Tucker and Reed and basically everyone else. So, they find out the commas on the Fritz. They go check Daniel's database. I noticed the Defiant flying by there and the figures, along with another raptor and what looked like a Vorcha. And uh, they go, they find the ship. Like, a lot of this, I don't have much to say about the action sequences. It's all right. They, they skip a couple of beats and... I feel like the camera direction could have been a lot better. But either way, you know, they rush down, they find them, they don't beam down. Good, good, the less they beam, the better. They use grenades, stun grenades. Thank you. That's actually really smart. Awesome. Then, the ship, with its precise cannons, support the boarders by making precision shots on the ship that they're boarding. Also smart. What the hell? You're actually using the tech of the ship logically in an intelligent way to move forward with the plot. Who wrote this episode? I'll answer the question. Berman and Braga. Which I actually, at this point in the episode, I checked. Like, really? Am I sure? Yeah, no, it's them. Wow. Did someone script doctor this? Because script doctors usually don't get credit. They don't have to give them credit for that. So it's entirely possible someone came through and cleaned this up. Because it's a lot of little things. But a lot of little things that are right. If it's not obvious by this point, I actually really liked this episode. We'll see how that goes next time, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. So they support them, and they leave, and they don't destroy the helpless ship. Huh. What they do, then, is they leave with proof of sabotage. Now, that's invaluable. They could go back and say, Captain... You know, there's there's a horrible, invisible Klingon weapon that can fire while cloaked. And you know what they'll say? They'll say, we are so desperate to exonerate the captain that we'd say anything. Reference is intentional. Having hard data, having proof, now that's valuable. They can take that and say, hey, look, look, this is what we got. What happens then is two scenes in short succession, which are actually quite good. First, he has a private, Archer has a private scene with T'Pol. Now, Archer bungles this horribly, and I think it would have been better if he had just been honest about it. And, you know, I, I feel like Bakula could have been a, done a better job here as well, but what ends up happening is he tells T'Pol, I need you. I need you on my side on this. I, I need you to believe me because I need you to be with me, because I, I can barely deal with this myself. And we see something that I like. I've been studying fictional time travel. Totally not real life. Don't worry. September. Uh, I've been studying real life 
excuse me, fictional time travel for a huge chunk of my life. As I've said, it's something I find fascinating, and I've gotten to the point of codifying rules of how it functions. You know, type 1, type 2, type 3. And I just spent a while discussing it in this very episode. But I bring all this up to explain that I'm kind of inoculated to time travel. If I discovered time travel, you know, 15 years from now, or 15 years ago, then I'm kind of ready for that. I'm ready to cognate in that particular dimension, for lack of a better term. That's not arrogance. Fiction serves as an inoculate to unusual ideas. This, I've said this so many times. If we had a real-life zombie outbreak, we wouldn't be like, oh my god, the dead are risen? We'd be like, oh, it's zombies, and deal with it. Because we have fiction, which serves as that barrier to the unbelievable. Thus, most often, in fiction, they don't have that barrier. So, Archer acts exactly how most fictional characters do. He can't, he can't deal with it. He knows he's time traveling and he's just, he can't wrap his mind around it. And he, it comes across that he's just, just barely holding on to his sanity amidst all this crap because he, he does not understand it at all. And he really needs to paw. He needs to have that person who understands this and who is smart enough to get this and to be on his side and to help him through it. He needs his Spock. It's a good scene. Then they find out that the Enterprise is being swarmed. Silic shows up again. Still awesome. Love him. Really, I do. How do I know you won't destroy Enterprise once I go on? You have my word. Interestingly enough, I believe him. I do. He's villainous, but a lot more straight than most villains tend to be. He's not the I'm going to manipulate you and lie to your face kind of villain, you know. This is probably exactly why Archer decides to go along with it and surrender himself. And in the wake of the previous scene, when he needed his to Paul, his Spock, to be there with him, to believe him on this, and to get him on this, he then hands over his ship, his mission, and his crew to her. It's a big moment, and it's an impacting moment. And I just want you to think really quick. Imagine if she stayed captain after this. Imagine if this really was a status quo alter. I know it's not. I've seen season three and four. But this would have been the perfect time to chop that and to really shake things up a little bit. And, I mean, I, okay, if I'm being honest, this isn't even shaking things up that much. This would be a minor change, but a change I would be fully in favor of. There's also a really nice tidbit where he turns to Tucker and says, you help her out with this, and Tucker just kind of gives a, a nod, like, yep, I got this, Captain, no worries. It's a good scene. Remember, no cheese. Then things go to hell. And congratulations, you're in hell now, uh, Archer. Congrats. One of the things I like is Daniels has always kind of come across as just, you know, kind of above it all. Kind of smarmy, if I'm being honest. But also, you know, very on top of things, right? Well... In his last thing, first of all, he comes across as not that. He's just flummoxed by all of this. But he mentions a couple of things. First, he says several times, this is what I was told to do. I was told they wouldn't follow you. I was told this would go this way. I was told. Now, we could take this several ways, but the way I take this, and I'd love to hear your interpretation, is he's just a grunt. He's just an ensign doing his job, or a crewman. He's not some big mastermind, you know, the elusive man seeing the thousand-mile picture and trying to figure out how to alter the timelines perfectly. He's just a guy doing his job. 
This is a Tuesday. And I like that. The second thing I like is... Uh, there's this bit where it cuts to the past and, like, where's Archer? I, I don't know. He must be on the ship. Silica, of course, assumes this is a ploy, which it kind of is, but just not on their behalf. And there's this amazingly terrifying moment, which is handled by Reed. The ship's targeting the warp core. They're all targeting the warp core. And the way he says that, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing and smiling because I'm evil, apparently, but it's just so dreadful. That they're all, I mean, think about what that kind of precision strike, alpha strike is going to do. They're already surrounded by a bunch of ships which are going to destroy them if they try to fight. But they're all going to fire right at your biggest weak point all at the same time. Yeah. And that's season one. Before I cut off, a couple thoughts. I had a thought. Enterprise isn't referenced in TOS, TNG, DS9, or Voyager. This is one of those downsides of doing a prequel. You kind of have to explain away things like that. To my knowledge, they never do. They never explain this lack of continuity. But it feels like it would be so easy to do so. I referenced the Temporal Integrity Commission earlier. The people who make the time shifts, ships... And the people who police the timelines, like Braxton over on Voyager, or the committee that showed up in Deep Space Nine for Trial and Tribulations. Have Archer and crew found that organization and effectively remove themselves from the history books so that they can start that organization and start trying to keep track of temporal incursions since they have so much experience with it being done directly to them and they have an invested interest to make sure that the existing temporal incursions don't get even worse going forwards. I'm pretty sure I'm not the first person to posit this idea. It's just something that's been bouncing around in my head every time the time temporal Cold War thing comes up. We had two lamentations this season. A lot of boring episodes. This is uh, this the third to last season one I'm covering for the show. I guess even that's not true, because I still got Discovery and, and, and Picard someday. Let me rewind a second. Every time I walk into a season one, there's a little bit of dread, because most of the season ones suck, right? Season one of Voyager? Ugh. Season one of DS9? Ugh. Season one of TNG? Ugh. Everyone hates season one TNG, right? Well, I don't. I'm serious, I don't. The first six or seven episodes are crap. And then it gets a lot better for the rest of the season, for the next 18 or so episodes. Or 17 episodes, excuse me. And that's kind of been my experience this whole time. There's this sort of general consensus, which I myself bought into, that season ones always suck. I had one person comment that they wouldn't be surprised if all of season one Enterprise was a lamentation. It wasn't. For me. As always, I am very curious of your thoughts, but I feel like Season 1 was pretty legit. And it did a lot of things right. It didn't have the chemistry of the actors to really make things work. It had several boring episodes, which is never a good thing. It had several absolutely face-palming episodes, which is not a good thing. It had two lamentations. But overall, I enjoyed this experience. I'm not sure what to make of that. But like I said, starting next week, and tomorrow from my perspective, 
we're going to be starting Season 2. And as I mentioned earlier, I have next to no memories of Season 2. Like, nothing. Except for the five or so episodes I mentioned. So this should be interesting. As always, I hope you've enjoyed. See you next time.